Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thank you so much for joining me this week. We'll be talking about only two chapters today, Luke 22 and John 18. And these are sacred chapters that talk about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane to be culminated with the agony of the cross. What we are talking about here is the culminating event of this earth, of this plan, that allows for all the good things which are available to us, that we're invited to receive from our Heavenly Father and through the grace of Christ because of this sacrifice. I know I don't fully comprehend it. I try to learn more about it, as I mentioned watching that movie, The Passion of the Christ, with Chris this past Easter time did give me a glimpse, but I don't think that's the only way, and I don't mean to suggest that it is, but I was grateful to take more time to ponder about the price that was paid. I love that verse. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, where Paul, writing to Corinthians, says, "'You were bought with a price.'" That resonates in my mind. My life is not really my own because it was bought with a terrible price by the Savior Jesus Christ, and I owe him everything. And I'm grateful to remember what that price was every time we take the sacrament. I'm grateful we have that opportunity to to ponder and focus. And as President Faust once asked, I wonder how many drops were shed for me And of course, it's not about the quantity of blood that was spilled for each one of us. We are all included in this infinite atonement. And nevertheless, that does help me to personalize it. And it helps me to be more motivated to not sin, to try to be more obedient, to try to repent more quickly, to try to improve and become a better version of myself so that I don't make the weight of suffering greater. Now, I know that's backwards thinking because this accomplishment is complete. Christ already paid this price. He paid my debt. And nevertheless, I want to honor that by not treating it lightly, by not casually being disobedient or rebellious or sinful or just careless with with the commandments that God in his mercy gives to us to guide our lives and to allow us to come back to him and receive of all that Christ will receive. I say it every time, but that is mind-blowing to me. The generosity and mercy of this plan that offers so much to me. So beautiful. We're going to get into some pretty cool thoughts about that, I think, a little bit later. But first, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about something different Now, I've mentioned before, I'm a couple of weeks ahead in recording this podcast, so many of you may have already had a chance to listen to President and Sister Oaks in their May 2023, so just recently, given Worldwide Devotional for Young Adults. I just listened to that a few days ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since, and I sat down and I talked to Chris about some of my thoughts, because I really... I really have always been a big fan of President Oaks, and he and Sister Oaks did a great job. But there was something in this speech that really caught my attention. Many great messages. This was really significant to me as I spoke with Chris about it. I really enjoyed our discussion and kind of what another little light bulb that has you know gone off for me that I hope to share today. So let me talk about that worldwide devotional. If you want to skip ahead and get to the part about these two chapters, Luke 22 and John 18, you're welcome to do so. But this was really precious to me. So in the devotional, President Oaks quoted from a long letter. He said, I guess he said it was multiple pages long, from a 16-year-old member of the church in a part of the world that doesn't have a lot of members. It sounded like it might have been in the U.S. from what she says, but he didn't specify where. And nevertheless, she is distraught a little bit in this letter, it sounds like. And here is what he quoted. He said, I'll call her Amy. I feel like I sometimes get inconsistent and confusing messages from the church. In my day-to-day life, I see members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on social media act like they are not a part of this gospel. Okay, does that resonate with anybody out there? 
And it's not just youth, it's members, she's saying. Our kids might feel like this, we might feel like this. Let me just say it again. Amy is saying in this letter, in her day-to-day life, she sees members of the church on social media act like they are not a part of this gospel. Going on, President Oaks quotes from the letter, I feel like I'm the only young woman in my ward who sees the things I see wrong with the world. I truly don't see why so many youth of the church don't see any problem with people changing their gender every other day, dating people of the same sex, or people who identify as no gender. At ward or stake activities, I'm asked my pronouns. Okay, let's just pause there for a minute. At ward or stake activities, she is asked what her pronouns are. Or at school, Amy continues, I am asked to dance with a girl who thinks she is a boy. I know we are supposed to love everyone and show them respect, and I always do. I just feel there is a line being crossed. I wish we heard more talk from church leaders about this problem. I'm going to repeat that last statement that he quoted from the letter. I wish we heard more talk from church leaders about this problem. Okay, you know you have heard other people talk about this. Maybe you have spoken about this too. That with all the evil that is happening in the world, sometimes we hear and we say maybe ourselves that we wish the church leaders would like kind of pound the pulpit in general conference or in other messages that they give and condemn this evil and you know, and and stand for, you know, cleansing the church and cleaning up the membership. I mean, come on, we've got people at Warden Stake Activities asking this young woman her pronouns. May I interject for a moment? I'm hoarse. (laughs) I've lost my voice a little bit this week, just kind of coming out of having a cough last weekend. So I apologize. My voice sounds pretty raw, but I think it's going to be workable and it doesn't hurt. So I'm going to continue. But when I get excited, it gets a little bit more pronounced. So please forgive the hoarse quality of my voice this week. Okay. Anyway, she had ended there with, I wish we heard more talk from church leaders about this problem. And as I said, I think many of us have either echoed that sentiment or have heard other people echo that sentiment that we want the church leaders to be really clear about these things that are happening in our world now. Now, here is his answer. And this is why I wanted to really have a good discussion with Chris about it, because I was trying to figure out like, okay, what exactly is he saying? And it happens so quickly in the devotional. I think you can skip over this. I mean, you can hear it and maybe not have it register all that much, which is why I'm bringing it into the podcast today. Here's where he started with his answer. And I have not found a transcript of that speech yet. I imagine it will be available at some point, but I had to listen to the speech on a video and transcribe. And then a couple of days later, somebody put captions on it. So (laughs) that made it easier to finish transcribing the parts I wanted. But I think it's word for word. It could be off by a couple of words, but it's pretty close because I really tried to be careful with the transcription. Oh, and before I get into that transcription again, let me just paraphrase a little bit. After reading the letter, President Oaks did make a few comments. He said that her dilemma kind of came down to the fact that this young Amy wanted to stand for the truth, but she wanted to do it with love. And because she wanted to you know, be obedient to the commandments of God, she was puzzled about how to do that. He did take a moment and talk specifically about gender dysphoria. And he did say that in general, his advice was, and I mean, it's not just general advice, it's, it's very positive advice. He said, take the long view and act on eternal principles. Now that's a paraphrase, but he says, use those words to take the long view. We've talked about this. God is playing the long game. It's the long game. We are creatures of eternity, not just creatures of mortality. This is a season of our lives. It is a relatively, actually very short season, relatively speaking. And this has important implications for eternity, but we need not to get bogged down in the here and now, except as it involves our use of agency. Then we should be very focused on using our agency to act in accordance with eternal principles. So what does that mean with gender dysphoria? Well, take the long view. In other words, People's feelings change a lot. In fact, a lot of studies have shown that gender is more fluid than fixed and is certainly subject to things like peer pressure or seasons of life. 
going through puberty can really distort people's feelings about their bodies, especially if there are other issues. There can be social contagion that we're seeing now. Fads emerge even at this incredible level and social media with all its influencers, in fact, does have a lot of influence, especially with our young kids, especially if they're anxious or depressed or lonely, or they're not well at doing well in their journey for a season, they can be very susceptible to these kinds of things. We've kind of mentioned some of those things before. So taking the long view and acting on eternal principles means what? Well, God has said again and again, that he created men and women He doesn't make mistakes. We know that very tiny fraction of a percentage of people who are born intersex with something that went wrong in the development of the embryo. Now we have the ability to test chromosomes and different kinds of hormone levels and so on. And that can resolve a lot of those issues that previously were not understood or we didn't have the ability to see more clearly if the child is really a male or a female child. Again, that is a very tiny, tiny group of people. And sometimes that's waved around like, well, yes, there are mistakes. And of course there are, there are birth defects, but those are all anomalies. They are meaning that God created men and women. And then occasionally there's a problem with like the development of the brain or the development of the body or the development of, of some part of that little creature. But we know that those are departures from the normal. And the normal is male children, female children, people who have their limbs, people who have their brain fully developed, they have a functioning circulatory system. And the other things are problems that have developed in the fetal stage. So we aren't talking about those anomalies that we all recognize as as a problem of the mortal development of that child's body in embryo. So Take the long view. There are males and females as created by God and act on those eternal principles. Now, I've talked to parents who have children who are doubting their gender and who have been influenced by these many things we've talked about that can come at our children and they're vulnerable for one reason or the other. Anyway, I would say you can't and shouldn't force your children. Force is Satan's plan. We don't do that. But we don't have to buy in to the short view and discard the eternal principles that we have learned from the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, if I have a child that comes to me and says, you know, I'm the opposite sex or gender, I'm not going to agree with that. And I'm not going to support moving in that direction. If a child becomes a legal adult and has their own means to make decisions that I am grieved at. I'm not going to force, of course, and I'm not going to demand, but neither would I, when I had the choice with a dependent child, neither would I use my resources to support something that is contrary to eternal principles. I'm making some really clear statements here, brothers and sisters. I know others disagree, and I respect disagreement, but this is my understanding of what President Oaks is saying, and of course, this has been repeated again and again. We have it in the family proclamation. We have our prophets repeating this from the pulpit and general conference and on other opportunities, as President Oaks did here as well. But okay, then President Oaks made this precious statement. He said, the spirit has impressed me to use this opportunity to emphasize precious truths the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals to help with such confusion. And then, as I said, in as close to his words as I can get in my transcription, he said, young men and women, your church and seminary and institute leaders and teachers and parents have the responsibility, that's a big word, responsibility and the inspiration to teach you the truths of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. That is both their inspiration that they are entitled to in those positions as church callings or, of course, in the calling of parent, but also the responsibility. So what is he saying? If there are church leaders out there who are teaching something different or are not teaching clearly the principles of the gospel, that is not correct. They are going against their responsibility. We can know that. 
That happens. People use their agency in lots of ways. Going on with President Oak's remarks, you have the valuable booklet for the strength of youth, which builds upon the principles of our Heavenly Father's plan of salvation, the atonement of Jesus Christ, and the covenants we made when we were baptized and which we renew each Sabbath by partaking of the sacrament. Its initial pages contain this promise. With these truths as your guide, you can make inspired choices that will bless you throughout eternity. So notice again the emphasis that President Oaks is making on the precious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the eternal principles. And if we have the long view, that is the only way to live our lives. That's the only way, is by using these amazing, precious gospel truths. And every Sunday, as we go to church and partake of the sacrament, we're renewing our allegiance to those principles, which is what we did when we were entering the waters of baptism to covenant with our Heavenly Father, to obey His law, and to live in accordance with those precious gospel truths, those eternal principles. Then, President Oaks took some time and talked about the two great commandments. He said when Christ was asked, and of course he was often being challenged, and they tried to trip him up, but he always answered perfectly, and they asked which was the greatest of the commandments, he gave them two great commandments, to love God, which means keeping his commandments, as he has specified, and the second great commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then he said, we must do both. He commented that some of us have a greater tendency to do the first, (laughs) which is to focus on the obedience to the commandments of God in order to demonstrate our love to our Heavenly Father. And he said he was in that group, (laughs) so that he focuses on the law, and he mentioned that his profession, of course, is as an attorney, that he was trained in the law, and so he has a great respect for the law and the freedom that it can bring to obey the law and the blessings that come from that. So anyway, he said that he may be in that first group where he emphasizes the first or has a greater tendency to emphasize the first commandment. But he says we must do both. And we have heard this again and again. Now, I just hope that you are hearing an echo in the next part of this with what we are hearing from the pulpit a great deal lately. I quoted in my son's podcast, Latter-day Takes, where I was a guest a few times now, but one that where we talked about the church supporting the Support for Marriage Act or something like that recently. Anyway, in that podcast, I talked about and quoted from a speech that President Oaks gave not that long ago about how we need to avoid contention. And I hear that echo. I hear Elder Christofferson talking about this a lot. I hear our wonderful prophet, President Nelson, speak of this a lot. I'm hearing this from many of our conference speeches you know, I think that they are giving us the answers we want. Sometimes they kind of go right over our head because we're sort of expecting fireworks. And yet there is fire. There is power in what they're saying. So let me try to explain why I feel that way. So he's saying we have to do both of these great commandments. Then he gives the example of the woman taken in adultery, which, as I've mentioned before, is one of the most misused stories in the New Testament, it seems to me, because so often people talk about it as if, That means that Christ forgave her on the spot, which he did not. As we mentioned, he did not forgive her because she hadn't even had a chance to repent. She had been caught in the act of sin, and they were ready to kill her. So he did intervene, and he protected her from that immediate death sentence by pointing out the hypocrisy of her accusers, which is so relevant and so important for us to, you know, recognize that are we without sin? Well, then what do we have? How do we have the right to condemn others? Now, that doesn't mean we can't recognize sin. We've talked about the difference between judgment and condemnation, or intermediate judgment and final judgment, which is condemnation, that is only God's to give. So anyway, this all ties into (laughs) this whole story, right? But Christ was certainly made a judgment there. He told her to go and sin no more. So his judgment was that she had been involved in a sin and that she should repent if she hoped for a better outcome eternally. He didn't condemn her to death in that moment. He showed mercy and then extended love and additional mercy by 
refraining from condemning her and yet affirming the law by saying, go and sin no more. Now, that's really important. He shows love and mercy by refraining from condemning and then affirmed the law by saying, go and sin no more. And President Oaks uses those two things a lot in his discussion. He mentions that the application of the law would come later for that woman and for each of us when we are judged on the whole of our lives, including the repentance that we choose. So this woman, as revealed by Joseph Smith in the latter days, apparently went forward and lived a good life. So she did repent, which means that in the day of final judgment, this sin would no longer condemn her. Had she not repented, she would have had to pay the price for that unrepented sin. And that is the same for each of us. But look how carefully he is weaving this. The application of the law will come later when we are each judged on our entire lives, including any repentance that we have fully completed and correctly completed. But on this earlier occasion, he says, the Savior extends love and mercy by refraining from condemning and then affirmed the law by saying, go and sin no more. So both the love of the individual, love of his neighbor, and yet the love of God by standing for truth and for the eternal principles and the precious gospel truths that tell us how to live. Then he said, the need to combine both love and law with inspired timing is ever present. That is a great statement. The need to combine both love and law with inspired timing is ever present. Then he quotes Elder Christofferson, putting the first commandment first, and that is loving God, does not diminish or limit our ability to keep the second commandment. Now think of the times where we do put those two things in opposition. We say that we love God and we love the commandments and we want to be you know, obedient and righteous, and so we condemn our neighbors, or we condemn members of our family, or we condemn others because we love the law. Well, it's good to love the law, but it is important to love our neighbor. We need to combine both love and law with inspired timing, which means that just like Christ did, we need to postpone making, well, what is an inappropriate final judgment. We don't have the right to condemn anybody ever, but we need to postpone trying to impose on others our beliefs while still standing for our beliefs, while still stating the truth when it is appropriate and defending the gospel principles, not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm putting all that together. Okay, Elder Christofferson again, putting the first commandment first does not diminish or limit our ability to keep the second commandment, which is to love our neighbors. To the contrary, Elder Christofferson continues, it amplifies and strengthens it. Our love of God elevates our ability to love others more fully and perfectly because we, in essence, partner with God in the care of his children. Beautiful. Then President Oaks quoted two expressions, he called them, given by a BYU faculty member at BYU in a devotional address from November 22 and a conference address by Elder Lynn Robbins from November 2014. And the BYU speaker, I don't know, it might be in the footnotes, but he didn't mention it in the text of his speech, was Jeanette Jacob Erickson, who is a BYU professor in church history and doctrine and gave a devotional address in November, as I said, of last year, designed for covenant relationships. And this is the quote. It's really beautiful, so I hope I didn't take away from that by giving you the source. The whole work of the plan of salvation culminating in the great atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is to enable us to become beings of love in the deepest form of connection with others. I'm going to repeat that. The whole work of the plan of salvation culminating in the great atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is to enable us to become beings of love in the deepest form of connection with others. This teaches us that commandments and all prophetic guidance, including the precious truths in the proclamation on the family, is to guide us 
in the ways of God that we might become beings of love. I think that's beautiful. And I think it's really exactly what President Oaks is trying to get across here. Beings of love. We love God more and more correctly and eventually perfectly by keeping his commandments better and better and more perfectly as we progress and are aided by the atoning power and the enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And we also must learn to love our neighbors, to be beings of love in our connections with others. And as Elder Christofferson just said, our love of God elevates our ability to love others more fully and perfectly because we become partners with God in the care of his children. We want to be like him. And in growing towards his being, we are beings of love, love for God, love for our neighbor. Now, the second quote, which is by Elder Lynn Robbins, trying to please others before pleasing God is inverting the first and second commandment. Now, we've talked about this. The societal you know, value of tolerance has become so elevated that it is trumping any love of God and of his commandments. I mean, they are quickly to throw out the Ten Commandments or anything else. Frankly, throwing out religion, belief in God, Christianity, prayer, and all these things are being shoved to the side in order to demonstrate virtue by tolerating everybody and whatever idiosyncrasies they come up with. And this is this is a disaster because people are capable of all kinds of weird idiosyncrasies, which can be then influenced by the power of the adversary, who can create all kinds of depravity, all kinds of of extreme natural man unharnessed behaviors, which are incredibly destructive of the individual who is acting in those ways, as well as to those around them. So this is what Elder Robbins is saying. Trying to please others before pleasing God is inverting the first and second commandment. And they were given in that order for a reason. He continues, it is forgetting which way we face. And yet we have all made the mistake because of the fear of men. And our children are vulnerable to this. They want to be accepted. They want to have friends. They want to please their teachers sometimes. So anyway, it's difficult. It's difficult to get this balance right. But we need to face the right direction and not invert these two commandments. Continuing, Elder Robin says, The Savior, our great exemplar, always faced his father. He loved and served his fellow men, but said, I receive not honor from men. He wanted others to follow him, but he did not court their favor. Really beautiful, clarifying expressions here that President Oaks is using to help us understand how important it is that, yes, if we love God, we want to become as he is. And he is a God of love and he loves his children. He loves each of us in a perfect way. And yet we must not forget which way we face and we must not invert those two commandments the way the world has currently done and will continue to do to seemingly elevate this virtue of like, well, we have to just be okay with what everybody does, no matter how depraved, no matter how destructive of themselves and others, because, you know, that's how we become, you know, virtuous and whatever, instead of remembering that that is a huge offense to God. It is being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this balance of, again, the tension between the first and second commandment is challenging. And what President Oaks is teaching us is that it shouldn't be that that difficult in a way. Well, he didn't say that. But what he said was that if we get it right, they both come together in this perfect synergy. What President Oaks comments after sharing those statements is both true guides of what God has commanded us to do. Then he continues, on the subject of the first commandment, God has repeatedly said that he created us male and female. Now, these are more paraphrases, pretty close to what he said, but I wasn't as meticulous. And then on the subject of the second commandment, Christ repeatedly taught that we must love even those who do not keep all the commandments. So we have eternal principles that he's repeating. God created male and female. And he taught us we need to love even those who do not keep all the commandments. And those are clarifying 
ideas for particularly this difficult subject of gender dysphoria or all of the gender complexities or the sexual complexities that people are bringing forth. And we have to have compassion. Well, we don't have to, brothers and sisters. This is always our choice. But if we want to do it in the Lord's way, then we will want to find those two goals to be synergistic and we'll find the way to have them work together. We will stand for truth. We will not apologize for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will do what we best understand to be in harmony with the eternal principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, these precious truths, but we will not be contentious about it. We will love people rather than try to fight with them. We will not create an adversarial climate. We'll not go to battle about this. Do you remember that last week, when I was talking with Chris, I was reminding him, I said that last week I quoted Hugh Nibley, who made that great comment about how Zion never goes to war against Babylon. And that is such a key to what President Oaks is saying, I would suggest. In fact, here it is. This is Nibley. There is no mixing of Babylon and Zion. God will not tolerate any concessions by Zion. But then he goes on and says, Zion does not and has never made war on Babylon. Then he went on and said, for when the environment has become too foul for Zion, she has simply been removed. Now we might ask, well, why hasn't God removed Zion? Well, first of all, we're not quite Zion yet. I mean, hopefully we are working on this every day. And we are renewing that desire as we take the sacrament every Sunday and renew our covenants. But we are hopefully keeping Zion in our view. We are trying to live in a more Zion way so that we will become the people that God can call out from Babylon once and for all. Nevertheless, right now we're still in the gathering phase. And God says there are enough people that are still in the world that if he removes Zion from out of their midst completely, we'll miss out on some people who could be gathered to Zion. So we need to tolerate this this precondition of Zion being removed. And we don't make war with Babylon. That is huge, brothers and sisters, because contention is not God's way. And I think Again, we have this kind of desire sometimes for somebody to, and you know, I'm a pulpit pounder, so I can see this. I mean, you know, you kind of want to get up there and just say like, you know, to heck with all this stuff. I'm being very mild here with all this stuff and be maybe more forceful in our discussion with the adversaries of this approach. And there are adversaries to Zion. There are adversaries to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are antichrists. There are many outside and some inside the church who are doing things that are not in harmony with the gospel. And this young girl mentioned some. I mean, you got church leaders when she goes to a youth activity who are asking her her pronouns. Oh my goodness. And yet what would Christ have us do? He would have us love them. The time is not yet for Zion to be completely removed. The wheat and the tares are growing together. We've talked about this many times. That Christ said it's not until the end that the wheat is gathered and the tares are burned. And we can gather as much wheat as possible if we don't create contention. If we still love people who maybe aren't completely sure of what they want or they haven't fully understood what the Lord wants for them, but they are still in the mix. They're still trying. They still believe, at least in part, maybe not exactly the way we do, but they're still wanting to be a part of the church. So are we going to just have a knockdown drag out and call them out all the time? That would be contentious, and that's not God's way. So what does Amy do when she goes and she's asked her pronouns? Well, she could say, I don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm a daughter of God, and please address me in that way. And she doesn't have to get into it. She doesn't have to be rude. She doesn't have to be snarky or sarcastic or condescending. But she can just reaffirm, well, I, you know, I believe God made us male and female, and I'm one of his daughters. She could be kind about that. She may need backup from a parent. You know, she may choose her moment. We try to use the spirit to know how to respond in kind, 
loving ways that still affirm eternal principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that young woman has problems, of course, she should go and consult with her parents. Hopefully they are supportive or priesthood leaders or bishop and try to get the support that she needs to reaffirm the truth and yet not be obnoxious or hurtful or tell people off. Tricky stuff. Yet clearly what God wants in us. And can you see how this helps make us a more Zion people? Like maybe this is one of our real failings is that even in our desire and our fervor and our passion for Zion, and I feel those things, I hope you feel those things, that we cannot let it turn us into contentious or hurtful people. We still need to understand that the worth of every soul is great. And we are not here to cause fights, to cause contention or to contribute to contention. I don't know if any of that is as exciting to you as it is to me, but I really love this message. And I hope that you'll listen to the whole speech. It was a great speech that both uh, President and Sister Oaks contributed to. Nice to see them together like that. And that we will capture this important element of being a Zion people, that we don't go to war with Babylon. We manage that wonderful juxtaposition of the first and the second great commandments to love God with all our heart, soul, might, mind, strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves and to forbear from negativity and from anger and from contention. Because how sad would it be that in our love for God, we forfeit our eternal salvation by being contentious with our neighbor? That would be a tragedy. No, we can come out from Babylon in our minds and in our hearts and in our behavior, and we can become clean. And part of being clean is treating others in the way Christ would. He did not condone sin ever, but neither did he treat people with anything but kindness and love. And sometimes charity, as we have noted in other discussions, means that we have to draw appropriate boundaries. And those can be done in kindness and in love, not in anger, not in contention, not in an adversarial or negative way. Finally, we are talking about Luke 22 and John Let me check the chapter 18, Luke 22 and John 18. Now, I'm not going to mention much from the scripture account. I do want to mention just a couple of things, but these are familiar parts of the the ministry of Christ as he suffers the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and has his last messages with his apostles. I do want to focus on one verse just quickly here, verse 27 in Luke 22. As you know, there are many great things that I'm not going to get to, so please enjoy all of these wonderful words. But in verse 27 of Luke 22, it says, For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat? Like, it would seem obvious, right? The servant is not as great as the master. The master is employing the servant. And so who's got the greater status? Who is more important? And then he turns it around and says, but I am among you as he that serveth. In other words, he's saying, don't get caught up by the way the world sees things, by the way the world does things. Now, who is greater? It's the one that serves. Is not Christ the exemplar of that? He wants us to be humble. He wants us not to jockey for position, not to think that we're too good for stuff, not too good for anybody else, not too good for for anything else, that we, we are humble followers of Christ and we are willing to serve and to not expect others to see us in some exalted position. His apostles were constantly reminded of this. He's reminding us again, you know, this can happen even in a marriage where sometimes This doesn't happen all the time, I'm happy to say, but it does happen where the husband might say, well, I'm the one who's getting paid, so it's my money. Oh, heavens, what a mistake. What a mistake. How contrary. 
to the word of God. How contrary to the example of Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine denying the contribution of a wife and a mother? Never, never excusable. And to use that power to act as if they are greater, to maintain unrighteous dominion and power and control, to exercise it in that way, that's heinous to God. That's never going to be acceptable. Or for parents to do that with the children. Now, certainly parents have authority and stewardship, and they do need to be parents, not just friends to their children, although we do want to have a positive relationship, but we are parents. So there is authority there, and yet we serve We sacrifice, and that's how we show that love, not by expecting our kids to jump around and serve us. Now, that's not usually the problem in our permissive world, but there are some parents who might act like that and boss their kids around and be more authoritarian. Even though we've got a trend toward permissiveness, there are still some who become authoritarian parents and are pretty bossy or demanding with their children rather than serving and sacrificing for them while teaching them to harness their natural man and to become obedient and have self-control and delay gratification. So anyway, we can do more than one thing at the same time, right? I just think that's a really important reminder that Christ, here at the very end prior to his atoning sacrifice beginning, the suffering is about to begin, and he makes this point again. And then, of course, there's the story of Peter. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. You know, Peter's one of my heroes has shown such devotion to the Savior, such that, you know, kind of impulsive desire to do whatever he can to be like Christ, even to the point of getting out of the boat and walking on water for a while. I don't know how many steps, probably not too many, but then he gets a vision of what's going on around him and how supernatural his actions are, and he starts to sink in the waves and says, Master, save me, and he is saved by the Savior. So anyway, here's a great apostle who wants to do all things that he can to demonstrate that love that he has for the Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, in his statement here, he says, well, Christ, tenderly speaking to him, says in verse 31, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Verse 32, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. I mean, that might have seemed to be a little bit insulting to Peter, who probably felt he was pretty converted by this point. But we know that Peter became much greater following Christ's death and resurrection, following the day of Pentecost when the Holy Ghost fell upon the apostles, which gave him a witness of Christ that was even stronger than the sight, touch, all the senses that he had felt when he was walking and talking with the Savior. And he became as I said, even more converted and did strengthen his brethren, a man of great humility, even in the manner of death that he chose. He says right here in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And maybe the Savior wanted him to remember to be more humble, more aware that he wasn't finished yet. And he tells him, he prophesies that Peter will deny him thrice before the cock crows in the morning. This must have been devastating for Peter to hear this, and even more devastating when it came to pass, which it certainly did, because as the record tells us in both these chapters, three different times people accuse Peter of being one of the followers of Christ. And here at this horrible time when Christ is in this illegal trial and is being prepared for the horrible death of the agony of crucifixion, he denies his association with Jesus Christ. And when the cock crows and he hears it, this is in verse 61 of Luke 22, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. What a broken heart he must have had in that moment to know he had betrayed his association with the Savior, and the Savior looks at him when the cock crows. And what do you think he wanted Peter to feel? Do you think he wanted him to feel like he was a terrible person? Of course not. He just wanted him to be humble and to know that he had still a distance to journey in his growth and in his ultimate conversion. But the Lord looks on him with compassion. You know that too, because the Lord always has compassion. And 
there must have been great love for Peter in that moment. That clearly was part of the inspiration that turned Peter into the great apostle that he was, the president of the church after the death and resurrection of the Savior. Tender story there. Tender story always touches me. I just want to say that this is something I've repeated many times before, but there are some things that should never leave our mouth, and certainly some words that should never leave our mouth in a string, like, I would never, or my child would never. Like, let's just banish those words and have some humility and recognize that every day we need to get up and put on the armor of God, that we need to get up and do the things that God has asked us to do so that we can stay strong, so that we can increase in light, strength, truth, intelligence, that we can continue to become more and more valiant and more and more conformed to the image of God's Son. Okay, I want to quote this from the curriculum guide. I really liked this. There were only three mortal witnesses to Jesus Christ's suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they slept through much of it. Remember that tender rebuke that Christ comes you know, taking a break from the agony that he's suffering, comes out to see, and he says, could you not watch with me one hour? We don't know if it was one hour or many. Of course, the time wasn't really the issue. It was the magnitude. But they couldn't even stay awake through this culminating event of the entire plan of salvation. Now, I can hardly stay awake either when it's quiet and dark, so... I'm not condemning them. I'm just thinking of, again, the Savior really had to do this alone. Continuing with that paragraph in the curriculum, in that garden and later on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sins, pains, and suffering of every person who ever lived, although almost no one alive at that time knew what was happening. Eternity's most important events often pass without much worldly attention. And that is certainly true. When we think back even to the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who knew anything about Joseph Smith? A young boy, third grade education, anyway. And you could find many, many other examples of that as well. But I like that statement. Eternity's most important events often pass without much worldly attention. Then our materials in the curriculum quote from Matthew 26, 38, saying, In the garden, he said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Submitting to the will of the Father, he suffered more than we can comprehend. Blood came from every pore, so great was his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. And that is from Mosiah 3, 7. He suffered for the sins, sorrows, and pains of all people, providing remission of sins for those who repent and live the gospel. Through the shedding of his blood, Jesus Christ saved all people from what the scriptures call the original guilt of Adam's transgression. We were all fallen, and of our own choice, so that we could come and get a body, and so that we could choose for ourselves how much of Christ's incredible invitation, of course, echoing the invitation of our Heavenly Father, we choose to receive through our obedience. So that is what the atonement provided for us, the opportunity to overcome the separation that we had chosen in coming to this earth. And as we follow in the path of Christ, in the example of Christ, then we, like he, need to accept the bitter cup and we need to not rebel or overly complain about it. Notice I said overly complain because in moments it's okay for us to grieve and to go to our Heavenly Father with that pain and to get succor from our friends and family and to give succor to those who are going through their own bitter cups and their culminating trials of life. But let's look at what Elder Maxwell said about this in a speech given a long time ago, September of 1974, in a speech called But for a Small Moment that he gave at BYU in a devotional address. Long time ago now. He's speaking to the students, but it's for each of us. And there's so many 
speeches on this topic. I'm just choosing one that I think has some great relevance to how we can deal with the difficulties of our lives. And especially in these latter days when things are so tough that the scriptures tell us that if the days were not shortened, even the elect would fall. Like that's what we're dealing with, brothers and sisters. But we don't have to fall. We can choose to follow the Lord's will and not second guess and not give up and not break. So anyway, let's listen to some of the things that Elder Maxwell says in his wonderful way. It is because you will face some remarkable challenges. It is because you have a rendezvous with destiny that will involve some soul stretching and some pain that I've chosen to speak to you tonight about the implications of two things we accept sometimes quite casually. These realities are that God loves us and loving us has placed us here to cope with challenges which he will place before us. I'm not sure we can always understand the implications of his love because his love will call us at times to do things we may wonder about and we may be confronted with circumstances we would rather not face. I believe with all my heart that because God loves us, there are some particularized challenges that he will deliver to each of us. He will customize the curriculum for each of us in order to teach us the things we most need to know. He will set before us in life what we need, not always what we like. And this will require us to accept with all our hearts the truth that there is divine design in each of our lives. And it's skipping a little later. He says, let me begin by reminding you that we so blithely say in the church that life is a school, a testing ground. It is true, even though it is trite. What we don't accept are the implications of that true teaching, at least as fully as we should. One of the implications is that the tests that we face are real. They are not going to be things we can do with one hand tied behind our backs. They are real enough that if we meet them, we shall know that we have felt them because we will feel them deeply and keenly and pervasively. Then he talks about some of the lessons of the atonement. And again, I'm just going to pick a couple of things here. We may at times, if we are not careful, says Elder Maxwell, try to pray away pain or what seems like an impending tragedy, but which is in reality an opportunity. We must do as Jesus did in that respect. Also preface our prayers by saying, if it be possible, let this trial pass from us. By saying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt, and bowing in a sense of serenity to our Father in heaven's wisdom, because at times God will not be able to let us pass by a trial or a challenge. It is because he loves us that at times he will not intercede as we may wish him to. That too we learn from Gethsemane, and from Calvary. Later, he says, a trap into which we can fall is that we may at times assume that the plan of salvation requires merely that we endure and survive, when in fact, as is always the case with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is required of us not only that we endure, but also that we endure well that we exhibit grace under pressure. This is necessary, not only so that our own passage through the trial can be a growth experience, but also because more than we know, there are always people watching to see if we can cope, who therefore may resolve to venture forth and to cope themselves. Every time we navigate safely on the straight and narrow way, there are other ships that are lost, which can find their way because of our steady light. Doesn't that remind you of the hymn, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning? What is that beautiful hymn? 
That's from the hymn, Brightly Beams Our Father's Mercy. Anyway, that reminded me of those beautiful words. Go check it out if you haven't heard that hymn for a while. We don't sing it very often, it seems to me. Anyway, I think this is such an important point. It's not just about enduring. It's about enduring well, because that means that we're growing. It's a growth experience. And there may be others watching who can be strengthened by our keeping our light burning, even in the darkest times. Our children watch us. And it doesn't matter how old we are, brothers and sisters, we can still be an example to our children of trying to live the gospel at every stage of our life, in every season. And there are others who watch us, whether we know it or we don't know it, that perhaps we can strengthen. Now, I'm going to stop and say that Elder Maxwell is such a great example to me in so many ways. And we have so many wonderful examples around us and that have gone before. Maybe you know this. I think I may have mentioned it before, but in the biography of Elder Maxwell called A Disciple's Life, early in the book, it talks about his own diagnosis with terminal cancer. He was with his wife when the doctor gave him the news, and his first response was to turn to his wife and say, I just hope that I don't shrink. You know, I loved that man before I read that story, and I loved him even more after. And I yearn to follow in that path. I don't welcome suffering. I don't like suffering. But I recognize that it is an intrinsic part of the plan. It is the only way. There is no other way for us to become qualified and prepared for all that God wants to give us, for the power that he wishes to endow us with, that can only be handled by those who can endure with grace grace under pressure, and can continue to grow no matter what. And that is precious. It's precious to me that we have seen others do that in their lives, and we can do it in ours. I want to read a little section from Jesus the Christ by Elder James Talmadge about Christ's sacrifice. Christ's agony in the garden is unfathomable by the finite mind, both as to intensity and cause. The thought that he suffered through fear of death is untenable. Death to him was preliminary to resurrection and triumphal return to the Father from whom he had come, and to a state of glory even beyond what he had before possessed. And moreover, it was within his power to lay down his life voluntarily. He struggled and groaned under a burden such as no other being who has ever lived on earth might even conceive as possible. It was not physical pain nor mental anguish alone that caused him to suffer such torture as to produce an extrusion of blood from every pore, but a spiritual agony of soul such as only God was capable of experiencing. No other man, however great his powers of physical or mental endurance, could have suffered so, for his human organism would have succumbed and syncope, which means like passing out or unconsciousness, and syncope would have produced unconsciousness and welcome oblivion. In that hour of anguish, Christ met and overcame all the horrors that Satan, the prince of this world, could inflict. The frightful struggle incident to the temptations immediately following the Lord's baptism was surpassed and overshadowed by this supreme contest with the powers of evil. A little later, Elder Talmadge says, from the terrible conflict in Gethsemane, Christ emerged a victor. Though in the dark tribulation of that fearful hour, he had pleaded that the bitter cup be removed from his lips, the request, however oft repeated, was always conditional. The accomplishment of the Father's will was never lost sight of as the object of the Son's supreme desire. Now, that is such a beautifully stated truth. The accomplishment of the Father's will was never lost sight of as the object of the Son's supreme desire. In other words, more than he wanted to avoid suffering, he wanted to accomplish God's will, the Father's will for him and for all of us. So however much suffering there was, and there was more than we'll ever 
fully understand. He desired more than to avoid that suffering. He desired more to complete the Father's will. That's the path for us. Of course, we want to avoid suffering, and we should not seek it out, and we should take care in our lives to live in a manner that we avoid all kinds of unnecessary suffering and unnecessary pain, particularly the pain that comes from our own sins. We can avoid so much pain just by being obedient. Nevertheless, there are kinds of suffering that are a part of the journey of the follower of Christ, that if we want to become like him, we need to pass through certain experiences in order that we can be conformed to his image, that we can be purified and tempered, and our faith can be tempered and strengthened. So may that be true for each of us, or may we work toward this end, that our supreme desire will be the accomplishment of the Father's will and his will for us, and that that will always outweigh our desire for escape. Now, Elder Maxwell talks about this a little bit too in that same speech. Most of our suffering, brothers and sisters, actually comes because of our sins and not because of our nobility. Isn't it marvelous that Jesus Christ, who did not have to endure that kind of suffering because he was sin-free, nevertheless took upon himself the sins of all of us and experienced an agony so exquisite we cannot comprehend it. I don't know how many people have lived on the earth for sure, but demographers say, and remember this was 1974, between 30 and 67 billion, I don't know how much that number has grown by this point, but continuing, if you were to collect the agony for your own sins and I for mine and multiply it by that number, we can only shudder at what the sensitive, divine soul of Jesus must have experienced in taking upon himself the awful arithmetic of the sins of all of us, an act which he did selflessly and voluntarily. If it is also true in some way we don't understand, that the cavity which suffering carves into our souls will one day also be the receptacle of joy. How infinitely greater Jesus' capacity for joy when he said after his resurrection, Behold, my joy is full. How very, very full indeed his joy must have been. I've got to read that again. These words are so beautiful. If it is also true in some way we don't understand, and brothers and sisters, I'm just going to add my witness that I totally believe this is true. I learned it from something Elder Maxwell said in another speech a long time ago, but I really believe that this is true. The cavity which suffering carves into our souls will one day also be the receptacle of joy. Another way that he put it in the speech that I'm referring to is that suffering enlarges the heart, giving place later, expanded space for joy. I fully believe that with all my heart. And I know that that is the only reason that our loving Father in heaven and our perfect Savior would ask us to go through the tough things of this life because it will increase our joy. And as his joy was full after his resurrection, so can ours be if we willingly submit to the desire of our Father in heaven, even over our own desire to be free of pain. Now, just a few more things from this speech by Elder Maxwell. Whatever form the test takes, we must be willing to pass it. We must reach breaking points without breaking. Later, he says, the church is fully Christ-centered. The church is also Christ-powered. And it is also designed to help its members become more Christ-like. We must be Christ-centered individually. We must have his and God's power to do our work. So he's pulling these ideas together. The church is fully Christ-centered and it is also Christ-powered. So individually, we must also be Christ-centered 
and we will need his power and God's power to do our work. Continuing, and we must take seriously the challenge of becoming more Christ-like. We are in a world full of marshmallow men. Like the act of putting a finger into a marshmallow, there is no core in these men. There is no center. And when one removes his finger, the marshmallow resumes its former shape. We are in a world of people who want to yield to everything, to every fad and to every fashion, and may I add, to every desire of the natural man, no matter how licentious or depraved. Maxwell continues, it is incredibly important that we be committed to the core, committed to those things that matter about which our Father in heaven has leveled with us through his Son, Jesus Christ, and his prophets. There was more power processed and expended on that single night in Gethsemane, in that small garden, than all the armies and navies have ever expended in all the battles on the land and sea and in the air in all of human history. I'm going to say that again. There was more power processed and expended on that single night in Gethsemane than all the armies and navies have ever expended in all the battles on the land and sea and air in all of human history. The catalyst of prayer helped Jesus to cope with suffering, and by his suffering, he emancipated all men from death and made possible eternal life. Brothers and sisters, to conclude, our agency, our will, is the only real gift we can give God because it is ours, given by our Heavenly Father, but given without strings attached. He gave us agency and then allows us to use it without any force or compulsion that would have been imposed by Satan's corruption of God's merciful and perfect plan. This agency is ours. I have choice. And because it is my choice, I can give my choice to God. In gratitude for all that he does for us, in gratitude and awe and wonder for all that he offers, for all the blessings that he wants us to believe in, and to have sufficient faith that it draws us forward in the path of Christ to, like Christ, give our will to God, not my will but thine. Can that become one of our mantras in life? In doing this, my dear brothers and sisters, we are choosing glory. We are becoming a Zion people. As ever, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.